0: Pray with me as we begin. Dear Father, this is a huge theme in your word with many implications for our lives. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning and as this series progresses, and that you'll give us responsive hearts that joyfully act on what you reveal to us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. good morning genesis chapter 1 i'd I'd like to ask you to turn there in your bibles uh, the first page and i'm going to read just a few verses that present the pinnacle of god's creation the culmination of god's entire six-day work by which all that exists came into existence and that pinnacle of God's creation is man. Genesis 1 starting at verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth then god said behold i have given you every Plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth. Day. Now, this brief passage reveals the very foundation and essence of God's design and purpose for human beings. He created us male and female, He created us in His own image and likeness, and He created us to rule over the earth. Now, this is a good place for me to point out that for the rest of this message and this series, Unless I specifically say otherwise, when I use the word man or men, I'm talking about mankind, male and female, as the image bearers and agents of God in the world, just as God speaks of man in Genesis 1. God created man with an assignment to fill and rule over and subdue the earth. The command to fill the earth was inseparable from the command to manage or have dominion over the earth and everything in it on on God's behalf. The garden was just the starting point. Since humans are not omnipresent like God, they can't manage what they don't physically inhabit. God's commission to mankind was to rule over the whole earth, so man had to multiply and fill the whole earth. Now, We've been pretty successful with that part of the commission, multiplying and filling the earth. But but if you read Genesis chapter 11, you'll be reminded that God had to force man's hand to get us to do the filling part of that commission. Chapter 2 of Genesis tells us that the rule or dominion that God assigned to man includes both created beings, the animals, and created things. Man was given the assignment of cultivating, nurturing, and caring for all that God put on this earth. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, we discover that God holds human beings accountable to act as his agents and image bearers in their dealings with each other. God cursed Eve for succumbing to Satan's temptation and for enticing her husband to do the same. You see that in verses 13 and 16 of chapter 3. And God cursed Adam for succumbing to the enticement of his wife, literally in verse 17 for listening to the voice of his wife. Doesn't mean that men are never supposed to listen to their wives or talk to their wives or or collaborate with their wives. It means that Adam was not supposed to submit to the enticement That his wife set before him. The one that resulted in him eating the fruit that God had forbidden. That's in verses 17 to 21, the curse, God's curse against man. From that point forward, countless passages in the Bible demonstrate that mankind's task of managing God's world includes acting as God's agents in God's dealings with other human beings. One foundational example is Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God said to Noah after the great flood, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1, right? Now, those two verses make it crystal clear that the image of God in man persisted even after the fall. And they also make crystal clear that the agency of man to act in God's creation on God's behalf not only continues after the fall, but it includes the realm of God's dealings with other men. In Genesis 9, verse 6, God did not say, If a man sheds another man's blood, I will take that man's life. God certainly could have done it that way. But instead, God says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed, for in the image of God he made man. I believe that the image of God in that passage explains two things. It explains why one man forfeits his life if he kills another man. He has killed one who was made in the image of God, and God is deadly serious about that. But it also explains why God will use man to take the life of the murderer, for in the image of God he made man. God will use man as his image bearer and agent to execute his judgment against One image-bearer for taking the life of another image-bearer. This principle that God uses men in His dealings, God's dealings with men, shows up countless times in the Law of Moses and throughout the Old and New Testaments. I could spend a lot of time developing that one point, but we need to press on. And again, all of this comes after the fall of Adam. So both the image of God and the agency of God continued after the fall in the midst of the curse. That's hugely important in the Bible. James affirms that same truth in the New Testament in James 3. This is James 3, verses 8 through 10. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of, of god from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing my brethren these things ought not to be this way now i should point out that the actual word agents uh, agent or agency shows up very rarely in most english translations of the bible but the reality of human agency pervades the entire bible starting with the first chapter Now, that shouldn't cause us heartburn that you don't find that exact word often. The word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible at all, but both the reality of of the triune God and the reality of human agency are introduced in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, and both pervade the Bible from cover to cover. For several years, I have wanted to examine with you the foundational matter of human agency agency as it's presented in the Bible. This is an ever-present theme that impacts everything about God's dealings with human beings and through human beings, again from the first chapter of the Bible to the last. So why did we as elders pick now to do this series? Will recent events in our world and culture and in God's church, including this local flock of God's church, have accentuated the vital importance of this truth. What the Bible reveals about the God-ordained assignment for human beings to act as His agents in the world touches our daily lives at very nearly every turn. It informs countless decisions that we must make day by day, as we journey through our mortal lives here under the curse. A biblical understanding of human agency explains exactly why we who trust only in God do things like avail ourselves of doctors to treat our illnesses and injuries, including unbelieving doctors, instead of expecting that God will necessarily heal us without the involvement of other humans. A biblical understanding of human agency explains exactly why we who trust only in God as our protector and healer have required over the last couple of months that those who attend services at CBC wear face masks. A biblical understanding of human agency explains exactly why we as elders at CBC who firmly believe that Christ alone is the shepherd and protector of his flock, hired an armed, off-duty Richardson police officer to be in the foyer of our church on Sundays. A biblical understanding of human agency profoundly affects how you and I view the entire question of personal accountability to God through other men and connected with the matter of accountability to God through our fellow image-bearers, a biblical understanding of human agency profoundly affects how you and I handled the critical matter of headship and submission in response to God's clearly revealed design. That, that affects what happens in the church, in our marriages, and in our interactions with the authorities that God has set over us in the world. A biblical understanding of human agency directly affects whether you and I rightly understand and carry out our role in God's marvelous work of evangelism. It explains why the God who who certainly could reveal Himself to every man directly like he did with Adam and Abraham and Paul, most often, most often uses the agency of redeemed men and women like you and me to accomplish that task. And finally, and most importantly, a biblical understanding of human agency directly affects whether you and I rightly esteem and honor Jesus Christ the perfect, sinless Son of Man, Son of God, the only man who perfectly fulfilled God's design for mankind when he was here the first time. Jesus is the one who perfectly shows us how to live as willing agents who both serve and display God on earth. We'll explore each of those outworkings and applications of the principle of human agency in the Bible as we proceed through this series over the next few weeks. What is human agency? Well, there are two critical aspects to human agency in the Bible. Instrumentality and representation. Instrumentality and representation. Those are big words, but they're actually very simple Concepts. Instrumentality is man used by God to accomplish God's work on earth. Representation is man acting on God's behalf on earth, more accurately, man acting in God's place on earth. Now, when I say in God's place, I don't at all mean that we're replacing God or that we're taking God's seat. I mean we're acting as God's representatives. In his creation according to his will. Now let's consider the idea of instrumentality for a moment. I found a really good, simple definition of instrumentality in the current online version of the Oxford Eng- English Dictionary. Instrumentality, noun, the fact or quality of serving as an instrument or a means to an end, semicolon, agency. My guitar is an instrument that I use to produce music, or at least to attempt to produce music. (laughs) By itself, it's unable to fulfill the purpose for which it exists. I think it's nice to look at, but it wasn't created to be a sculpture. It was created to produce music. But it doesn't produce music until a guitarist picks it up and plays it. It's an instrument, a tool, that I use to produce guitar music. God uses human beings as his instruments or tools to do all manner of things in his creation. God also can and does use every other created thing as his instruments to accomplish his will in his creation. But man's agency goes beyond instrumentality. Even rocks and trees and donkeys can and do act as God's instruments in the Bible. But God's commission for human beings is not merely to act as His instruments, but to act in His place, in His creation, as His representatives. And to act in God's place, we have to be like God at some level. My guitar can't act in my place because it shares nothing of my nature or character. It can't think or walk or talk or explain or teach or correct or love. But my son or daughter can act in my place. Even when they were little children whose minds and bodies had attained only a fraction of the abilities that mine had at that time, which isn't as much as they have now, (laughs) as mine have now, there were very real things that my children could do to act in my place to accomplish my purposes. They could put their toys back where they belong so I wouldn't have to. They could bring the mail to me or bring a plate of food to me. They could pass along a simple message from me to someone on the phone while I was working under the car. Their agency on my behalf included both instrumentality and representation. They could act in my place to accomplish something that I needed accomplished. Now, the analogy here is, of course, far from perfect, because the difference between my abilities and my young child's abilities was infinitesimal compared to the infinite difference between god's abilities and my abilities by every conceivable measure but god made me and you and every other human being sufficiently like him to act both as his instrument and as his representative in accomplishing his work in his creation And that combined role as instrument and representative is unique to human beings in all of God's earthly creation. And I use the word earthly creation because I don't want to get into the role of angels right now. That would be a distraction. Angels, by the way, are never said to bear the image of God. The agency of men includes many facets of God's assignment to men that we find in the Bible. We are God's representatives. We are God's stewards. We are God's instruments, God's tools. We are God's ambassadors. We are God's servants, and we are imitators of God. There's one additional facet of God's design for man's agency uh, that that I want to make sure we consider because god made man like himself in his own image man was thereby uniquely equipped to represent god in two ways first to do god's work god's way in god's creation on god's behalf which is what we've been talking about thus far but there's a second foundational thing that god's image in us uniquely equips us to do and that is to display god in his creation, to display God. We represent God not only by doing God's work, but by displaying God's character and God's ways. It's no coincidence that the word image that God uses of man in Genesis 1 is one of the words that is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to describe the idols. That fallen men fashion with their own hands and worship instead of God. Man was forbidden to make an image to represent God, to put the invisible God on visible display in His creation. Instead, man was supposed to be the image of God, the displayer of God's character and God's ways. As He, man, goes about doing God's work in God's creation. And that's where I came up with my title, God's Unsecret Agents. The Westminster, my series title, The Westminster Confession rightly declares that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But what does it mean to glorify God? It means to put God on display. David begins Psalm 8 by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. All majesty and glory belong to God. And he displays that glory, that truth about Himself in all of His creation, but the pinnacle of God's creation is man, and God intends that the preeminent display of His majesty, His character, His ways, and His works in His creation will be through man. Just two verses later in Psalm 8, David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And then in verse 5, David says, yet you have made him, you have made man a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. Whose glory and majesty? gods. The glory and majesty of the one whose very name is majestic. God crowned man with his glory and majesty. How? By making man in his image and by using man to accomplish his work in his creation. So, it shouldn't surprise us that the rest of Psalm 8 sounds a lot like Genesis 1. David goes on to say of God's commission for mankind, Psalm 8, verse 6, You make him, man, to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fishes of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And then David ends that beautiful psalm right where he started it. He says again, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. God created man to be the preeminent displayers of his own glory in his earthly creation. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that, that God himself walked in the garden in the cool of the day God inhabited the place that He made for man together with man. And man's God-ordained dominion over the earth that, that God had made was never independent dominion. It was instead dependent dominion. God did not say to man, here's my creation, now go and do whatever you want with it. God did not leave man to his own devices. He didn't say to Adam, Adam, name the animals and let me know when you're done. God brought the animals to Adam to name. I believe God was right there with Adam, enjoying that process as Adam carried out his role as God's agent in managing his creation. Man's agency on God's behalf has always been bound up in man's relationship with God. And we only rightly display God and do God's work, God's way, in God's creation when we are in right relationship with God. When Adam sinned against God in the garden, the only real life that exists for mankind ended that life is personal intimate knowledge of god and relationship with god and both the agency of man and the image of god on man were grievously damaged at the fall they were corrupted but god wasn't finished with man and as we've already seen Even after the fall, men still bear the image of God and still serve as agents of God. In the final message of this series, we'll consider how the perfect man, Jesus, fully redeems and restores the agency of mankind and the image of God and man back to that which God intended. Now, I want to consider for a a little bit the Limits of human agency, and this is, again, very important. The limits of human agency. As as anyone with even a cursory knowledge of the Bible knows, God has accomplished many powerful works in his creation without using men as his agents. Man was not involved when God created everything. Everything. God did not employ the agency of men to slay the firstborn males in Egypt at the Passover plague in Exodus 12. He did not employ the agency of men when he parted the Red Sea in Exodus 14 so the Israelites could cross over on dry land or to drown the Egyptian army in that same sea. God did not employ the agency of men many years later when He slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers while they slept. But it's it's very important for us to recognize that God did use the agency of men to announce, explain, record, and pass along to other men His purpose— for each of those miracles that I just listed. Overwhelmingly, in most of his dealings with men in Scripture and in history, God has used men as his agents, either to proclaim his work, to explain his work, or to actually do his work. But let's come back to the limits of agency for a moment. God. has has declared and proven over and over and over that the role of man is always instrumental, never causal. The role of man is always instrumental, never causal. Except for the perfect God-man, Jesus, man has never been more than an agent in the accomplishment of God's purposes on earth. It's vitally important that we agree with God about the difference between the agents and the cause. Or to put it another way, the difference between the instruments and the source. When we don't agree with God about that distinction, we always misinterpret and mishandle our assignment. God has many human instruments or agents through which he accomplishes his work on earth. Those instruments may be willing or unwilling. They may be redeemed or unredeemed. The instruments are all all replaceable and expendable. The source is not. When we elevate our role to anything higher than agents of God, We are putting ourselves in God's seat. And friends, if ever there was a non starter, that's it. God is not going to hand over his sovereignty to any created being ever. God has declared and proven over and over again that the role of man is instrumental, not causal. That's why in Judges chapter 6 through 8, God instructed Gideon to reduce the size of his army from 32,000 men to 300 men before sending that army to defeat the combined Midianite and Amalekite army that was, quote, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, God very clearly explained why he had Gideon make that force reduction before going into battle. He said said to Gideon, "...the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel become boastful." Literally, the literal translation is, "...lest Israel glorify itself against me." Those are powerful words. "...lest Israel glorify itself against me." saying, My own power has delivered me. If the Israelites had seen themselves as the cause of their victory over the Midianites, they would have glorified themselves against God. They would have claimed for themselves a glory that never belongs to men. In 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, it was precisely because King David elevated man from agent to cause, that God fiercely judged King David and all of Israel. How did David do that? By counting his soldiers. God didn't judge David for having an army. God had used that very army to do his bidding in numerous battles. But when David treated the size of his army as the determining factor in his readiness to go up against the enemies of Israel, instead of acknowledging that God alone determines the outcome of every battle, that's when God harshly judged David and the people of Israel. Here are two things about human agency that you and I can count on as true. First. God uses men as His agents to accomplish most of what He intends to do in this world, especially in His dealings with men. Secondly, men are never more than agents, instruments, in the accomplishment of God's will. Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps watch, keeps awake in vain. The passage does not say, if you try to build a house, you're not trusting God, you're sinning. Wait for God to build the house. It doesn't say that. In fact, the passage very clearly assumes and expects that the carpenter will build and the watchman will watch. Good agents of God diligently do the work that God fills their hands to do on His behalf on this earth. We don't say, let go and let God and then sit like bumps on logs. That's not God's design for man. But the passage clearly and emphatically declares that God is the cause Of the house getting built, and of the watchman detecting the presence of the approaching enemy. Man is the instrument, God is the source, the cause. We have to see both sides of this in order to understand our assignment. This simple biblical reality touches all manner of things about our daily lives, both within the body of Christ and in our dealings with unbelievers and with the institutions of this world. When a Christian mom and dad refuse to take their sick child to a doctor because they insist that to do so would be a denial of their trust in God alone, what they're actually saying is that God should stop doing things the way His Word says He usually does them. That doesn't honor God's Word and God's ways. However well-intentioned it may be, it ignores God's Word and God's ways. And such an approach inevitably comes with an implied accusation against other believers who do take their children to doctors. It labels them as weak in faith. And if they're not, in fact, weak in faith, labeling them as such is false witness. And God takes that very seriously. It's also very divisive. It needlessly tears the body of Christ apart. And I hope we all know how seriously God takes that. Beloved, ignorance of God's Word and of God's ways is not a legitimate defense for a believer who misrepresents God. Prophets and Apostles died so that you and I could have God's revelation of Himself to mankind and could, by the work of the Spirit through the Word, personally know God. When Christians declare it sin for other Christians to avail themselves of God's use of men as His agents, they are ignoring or denying the clearly clearly revealed Word and ways of God. But the same is true when Christians trust in the agent rather than in the source. Now, I'm going to get closer to home at this point. If I step on any toes, it is not out of a desire to be contentious. It's out of a desire to be biblical. There can be no unity in untruth. We will never be of one mind in the body of Christ if some of us cling to our own notions about how we think God is supposed to do things while we're ignoring how He says He does things. If the only way that I will gather together with other believers to worship God in the building at CBC or in any other place is if there's an armed policeman there to protect us from someone who might want to do us bodily harm, then I'm treating that policeman as the cause of protection, rather than as one possible instrument or agent of the one and only shepherd and protector of God's flock, who is God Himself. If the agent or instrument determines my behavior instead of the source, My fear and my trust are misplaced. But let me go back to the first error for a moment. If I declare that it is inherently sinful and distrustful of God for the elders of my church to avail themselves of the agency of a well-trained, well-armed police officer as a possible human agent through whom God might act, To protect this local flock from bodily harm, then I am labeling as bad God's normal way of getting things done on earth. If you say that the only agents that God can use to protect His people from a would-be attacker are believers, then you're ignoring the instances in the Bible in which God used unbelievers as His agents both to protect and to bless His people and to judge and correct his people. God used Balaam to bless Israel, even though Balaam wanted very much to curse Israel, so he could get the blood money that was being offered to him by the evil king Balak. God used the Pharaoh in Joseph's day as a person of peace, both to honor and to provide for Jacob and his family. Certainly, Joseph was God's primary human agent in that provision, but Pharaoh's kindness to Jacob and his family was one of God's very important instruments of provision for His chosen covenant people. God used the pagan king Abimelech to provide refuge for David when David was fleeing from King Saul. And beloved, many of us have heard compelling stories from faithful missionaries about God's use of unbelievers as his agents of provision and protection for those missionaries in exceedingly dangerous places and circumstances. We who belong to Christ should never assume that God intends to protect us from physical harm in the first place. Being a follower of Jesus means that we will absolutely share in the sufferings and persecutions that were directed against Christ when He was here, perhaps to the point of death. But there were many, many times in the Bible when God chose to protect His people from harm. And there were many times in the Bible when He didn't. I could give you countless examples of both from the Bible, but they're not hard to find. This matter of agency even impacts how we respond to COVID-19. When you wear a mask in public places in keeping with government requirements, or when you wear a mask at CBC in keeping with the requirements of the elders of this church, you are accepting a minor inconvenience to potentially serve as an agent of God to protect someone else or to protect yourself. You have no idea whether God will actually use that agency to accomplish that protection. But you're you're making a modest sacrifice to make yourself available to act in a protective mode in God's hands. And at the same time, beloved, you're displaying God's character and God's ways by accepting a minor sacrifice on your part to show the compassion and care of God for the vulnerable and the ill and and for medical workers who are working hard to care for people afflicted with the virus. Even if God never uses your mask to protect anyone, including yourself, you are still serving as a willing agent of God to display His character, His compassionate, merciful, kind, loving character in His creation. If instead, you refuse to wear a mask because you're convinced that masks have no protective value or because you're sure that COVID-19 isn't a real threat to anyone, you are sidelining yourself from acting as God's agent. And you're also, you are also exempting yourself from embracing God's design for headship and submission. Friends, if a governmental entity or a group of elders require you to do anything that God has not forbidden, then God compels you to do it. We'll talk a lot more about headship and submission in another message in this series but agency is front and center in what god and god's intention for friendship and submission it has nothing to do with whether the elders are always right we're not it has to do with whether god uses the elders that he appoints in a church as his agents in the shepherding of his body he's the shepherd we're not yeah We're going to have a lot more to consider in the coming weeks about the ramifications and applications of acting as agents of God according to what God has declared in His Word. I hope that you'll stay with us as we proceed. Pray with me. Dear Father, this principle is foundational to your assignment to us as image bearers and agents of the living God. I pray that you would give each of us a heart of humility to come to your word and to embrace what you are saying to us. And I pray earnestly that you will give us one mind and one heart so that we may be truly useful to you as you advance the kingdom of Christ on earth through your agents. We ask it in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen.